welcome to yet another anime podcast. Just who the hell do I think I am? I'm Ninja Boy, and I'm yet another anime podcast host. So normally once a season, I like to do a retrospective on an older anime season. Maybe one I've already watched and just want to revisit. Maybe one I've never had a chance to get to, and this is my excuse to do so. I'll try to pick a series that is particularly meaningful for the animated community at large. Last season, for example, I did Neon Genesis Evangelion. Now, normally, I'd wait for a series to be 100% completed, and ideally with several years since it's been done, in order to properly gauge its lasting impact. However, last weekend, there was an episode from the latest season of a long-running series that inspired this particular episode. I am talking about the wildly popular and often criticized Sword Art Online. So, Sword Art Online, or SAO as I'm going to refer to it uh, for Sword Hand, uh, first began airing in 2012 as an adaptation of the light novels of author Reiki Kawahara, uh, adapted by Studio 1A Pictures, with the light novel pub- published by ASCII Media Works. It's nearing almost 100 mainline episodes and has a feature film, a spin off series, six video games, and there are plans for a Netflix live action adaptation. Not to mention, there are various spin off manga and light novel series in addition to the mainline light novel series, which is still ongoing. Note that I'm going to be coming at this series as someone who has really only watched the mainline anime and the movie. I haven't read any of the light novels or manga, nor have I read the alternate spin off series. Uh, that and you know, also someone who's also read and watched a lot of the discourse about the series online over the past eight years, and I've done my best to do my research for this episode. So the main thrust of the show follows a character named Kirito as he explores various virtual reality massively multiplayer online RPGs. The classic first arc has him and other participants of the game trapped in such a game where the game's creator prevents them from logging out and uses a hardware exploit to, if the player dies in-game, instead of respawning, they are killed in real life. Cue the dramatic tension. So... Before I get into talking about the show itself, I think I need to address the elephant in the room that comes to Sword Art Online. SAO has a reputation as a quote-unquote basic anime series. That is, it's a series that's wildly popular, primarily with the casual anime anime fan base. Uh, If you went to any conventions in the years since SAO came out, you saw many Asuna and Kirito cosplays, especially back in 2012-2013. Similar series that fell into this this kind of show were Naruto and Bleach at the top of their their popularity, and then Attack on Titan and Demon Slayer uh, more recently. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with liking SAO. If that's just, that's if that's your jam, that's your jam. Love it and embrace it, right? Nothing wrong with a show that has broad appeal, um, especially to the quote-unquote castle viewers, especially if it ends up being their gateway anime into the medium in general and introduces them to other shows uh, to continue on with. Uh, that said, I think some of the reputation that SAO has gotten uh, is partly a backlash by the more entrenched seasonal, seasoned anime fan. On many levels, SAO is definitely a competent anime, and in some aspects, excellent so. Uh, in other aspects, uh, it doesn't really do anything particularly memorable, especially compared to what's out there, and there are some elements that are downright bad. 
uh, and that's the rub. You know, most anime have their high points and their and their low points. And for experienced anime fans who have the context of other shows and who are often the ones who are driving a lot of the discourse about anime, uh, especially in this little anime discussion bubble online, uh, you know, essay was was probably could have just been an okay show, has some great moments to it. Um, but what happens? They ended up getting very annoyed at new anime fans who would see only SAO and then claim it's the best anime of all time just because that's what their limited experience had shown them. So between the more some more experienced and influential anime YouTubers railing about SAO and nitpicking on the lackluster elements, uh, the YouTube algorithm kind of, uh, you know, uh, rewarding them for talking about this highly popular show, which encourages them to make more rants and spark more discussion. Uh, SAO has kind of become a shorthand for the kind of series that if it's someone's favorite show, you know either they haven't had much experience with anime in general, or if it's still their favorite show after watching a lot of Elseworlds out there, they have bad taste. Uh, And this opinion gets parroted by anime fans in discussion with their friends as they want to appear as if they have great taste. Now, not to say that the criticisms from the experienced fans was completely unfounded. Uh, I definitely have been there online discussing, and in regard to particularly certain elements from early seasons of SAO, I find some of them particularly cringy, such as the portrayal of the main character's relationship, um, the development or lack thereof of the villains, and a lot of other subpart elements I think come predominantly from the fact that the light novel author in the early arcs was pretty much an experience he hadn't really written anything before and so that getting adapted meant that you know the storyline would be that of a you know beginning author um now you know in uh in in my opinion these flaws are held up sometimes by early fans as the strength of the show and that's really frustrating especially when you try to show new fans that hey there is other stuff out there that has what you're looking for and more and they choose to turn a blind eye uh, intentionally. Um, that kind of caused the show to be very polarized and the discussion around it to kind of be, you know, you're either for it or against it and there's no middle ground. Uh, in particularly frustrating, I remember arguing with fans online who refused to believe that any other show could potentially live up to even half the amazingness that Sword of Online would be. So as you can probably tell, early on, I definitely fell into this mindset that SAO was a subpar show. Uh, you know, in fact, maybe even a bad show. While you know, at the same time, it was kind of a guilty pleasure uh, in that I would keep up with it every season it came out. Um, now that said, in the last few seasons, especially with the latest Elicization arc, I think I've come around and accepted that SAO does have great elements in it, and there definitely is a, an appeal and a role. And I would definitely recommend it potentially as someone's first potential anime if that's something that they're interested. in. And exploring in the medium, uh, while also costing them that there are elements that aren't quite as great and that there's definitely other stuff out there, but this is a good beginning so to check out. Um, overall, you know, I called a three out of five so, all things considered, uh, definitely skewing closer to four out of five in the later arcs, um, as, you know, uh, Kawahara's uh, writing ability in, uh, improved. Um, and again, specific arts have different ratings, which we'll get to later this episode. Now, that being said, you know, what's not middling, you know, it's a, if it's a middling so, it's not, what's not middling is the impact it had on the anime community and the genre at large. From 2012 on your, onward, when it first premiered, you start seeing a huge rise in the number of seasonal isekai anime, specifically those that are adapting light and web novel uh, isekai stories. Konosuba, ReZero, Reincarnated as a Slime, No Game, No Life, Rising of the Sealed Hero, Gate, and my personal favorite of all the isekai 
isekai so out there, uh, Log Horizon. These are some of the popular isekai that come out after SAO. And again, uh, isekai refers to a series where the characters live on one world or plane of existence, very often our own Earth, and they're transported to another one uh, in Sword Art Online. You know, it's a soft isekai in that the characters' consciousness are transferred to a virtual world, but you know, other game, other shows have them literally. Oftentimes, maybe they're killed by a truck or a bus, and then they're reincarnated into another world very similar to a video game, often uh, in recent years. Um, sometimes it's our world to a fantastical world, but there are other, also cases where characters from a fantastical world come to our world. Uh, Gate, for example, is an example is, is, is one example of this. Um, again, the term isekai uh, is now used as a shorthand that it comes from Japan, but the idea of an isekai isn't necessarily Japanese in origin. Uh, here in the West, you can point to Alice in Wonderland from the 1800s or The Wizard of Oz from the early 1900s as examples of Western isekai. Uh, going even further back, you have Dante's Inferno, where he literally visits hell, uh, and generally ancient myths and fairy tales and folk tales where heroes travel to heaven or hell or some mystical fae, magical plane, uh, those go back even further. If you look at Joseph Campbell's archetypal story structure called The Hero's Journey, the monomyth, uh, as described in his 1949 work, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, there was a part of this cycle where the hero crosses into the first threshold into the unknown world. And that's basically the crux of an isekai story where uh, the protagonist finds themselves in another world after a call to adventure. Um, now, in some cases, you know, isekai, you return back to our world, uh, or sometimes you don't. Uh, often in modern anime, that's not happening. Uh, in Joseph Campbell's myth, it, they do end up returning back often. Uh, in any case, uh, in Japan specifically, the 8th century fairy tale of Urashima Taro is an early isekai uh, that's often depicted in woodblock, woodblock paintings and also in oral history. It tells the story of a fisherman who rescues a turtle, and the turtle rewards him by bringing him down to the bottom of the sea to a another world where he lives a couple days as, you know, or a couple years as, um, you know, concert of the princes of the sea. And then finally he asks, oh, can I go back and, you know, see the rest of the world? He comes back. The hundreds and hundreds of years has passed because the time flows differently. Um, you know, in, in terms of anime, you know, there are a good number of YouTube videos. I'm not going to get into the full history of isekai in Japan, but there are a couple of videos I'll link in the show notes that have a good history of what counts as isekai. Um, again, Sword Art Online is by no means the first. Uh, going back to the 80s and potentially earlier in anime, uh, stories of protagonists going in between our worlds and other worlds are commonplace. Personally, you know, I watched when I was younger at least snippets of uh, The Visions of Escaflone, uh, Inuyasa, Yu Yu Hakusho when he travels to hell, uh, or the underworld, even Digimon to a degree. Those are all examples where at one point or another, uh, a, a character goes from our world into another world. Uh, with regard to the trapped in the video game variety of isekai, um, while Sword Art Online is definitely the most prominent uh, and one of the early prominent examples, there's even an earlier example in Dot .hack, uh, which, you know, maybe not as flashy or as exciting, but definitely not the, again, Sword Art Online is definitely not the first example of trapped in the video game. Uh, even here in the West, you know, if you think about virtual worlds, you have The Matrix, Tron, um, you know, even to some degree in anime, um, you know, talking about virtual, the virtual self, um, you have uh, Ghost in the Cell. Now, pre-SAO, isekai were often seen as more of an extension of the fantasy series, uh, a swords and sandal setting with medieval elements come to mind. Um, often, they were female protagonists, such as in Inuyasa or Escaflone, or they were much younger children, such as in Digimon. In line with kind of the fantasy tropes, 
that were targeting either a younger female or a, a female or a younger demographic. After Sword Art Online, though, you see a shift in isekai in anime. Uh, you know, they have a lot more video game influence. They're more influenced by Jap classic JRPGs, uh, such as you know, as opposed to which, while they do have the medieval setting, that's a product that's they're directly influenced by JRPGs as opposed to fantasy West, like you know, fairy tale stories. Um, that you know. Because uh, JRPGs had had the history back to tabletop RPGs from the West, um, which again traces uh, in, so kind of like a more diluted and game mechanics started showing up more and more in in RPGs. Uh, similarly, um, you know, there's a lot more science fiction elements, and the protagonists end up being a lot more male than female. Again, marking the different demographic that the producers are starting to target. Um, after all, you know, if SAO is as wildly financially successful as it was, if you're a producer, you're going to be taking the formula of SAO and trying to adapt it, meaning a web novel adaptation of a male protagonist in a video game, trapped in a video game, uh, a video game inspired world. Um, you know, and, and in prior isekai, you know, one thing I noticed is that there's often a focus on, hey, we're trapped in this world. Let's try to find our way back to Earth, back to our old life. Uh, here in the modern isekai, you see, you know, maybe sometimes people are trying to get their way back, but often they're just accepting like, hey, I'm in this situation now. I'll make the most of it. I have these, you know, otherworldly godlike cheat skills, you know, often that I'm, I'm granted by being isekai to this place. Isekai is now a verb as well. Um, why would I want to go back to my boring life when I can be essentially, you know, a top, you know, adventurer here. Uh, that last point actually ties into the to the real world that I think explains why SAO and the similar isekai to it were well received and, and explains its popularity. Uh, if you'll pardon the brief economics history lesson, between 1991 and 2013, Japanese basically saw no GDP growth with you know sustained deflation. Now, with Japan's workplace culture, where salarymen often stay with the company from being hired until retirement, and they often involve massive overwork and massive and long hours, some have speculated that the poor economic situation uh, in Japan at the time led to a growing prevalence of meats or hikikomori. Uh, neat refers to an individual who are not in education, employment, or training, and hikikomori is a Japanese-specific term for a sudden, uh, someone who with withdraws from society and stays in their room or their house. Um, many times the stereotype is that they're supported by their family in some manner. Uh, insert joke here about how the pandemic has turned this all into hikikomoris. Uh, anyway, there are an estimated half a million to maybe a million uh, hikikomoris or neets in Japan, depending on your definition. And the Japanese media really covered this heavily in the mid 2000s, 2003, 2004. Uh, perhaps, you know, these are individuals who are not able to engage in employment due to not being able to find the job due to you know old timers hanging out to all, all the jobs at salaryman companies and new jobs not getting on the market uh, or maybe they've gone disillusioned with the promise that you know if they work they were gonna you know feel fulfilled and you know with the overworking situation in the Japanese workplace they're disillusioned with that and they end up quitting um, and their social conflict has failed them uh, in any case while you can't point exactly while it's hard to say exactly where this comes from it's easy to see how a narrative about being able to escape a health a boring, mundane lifestyle where you're not appreciated in modern world, and then you're able to go to a world where you're the chosen one, where you have mystical powers, where you're above everyone else around you because of your knowledge of video games. That could be appealing to individuals who are 
trapped at home. Uh, consider that many isekai in the modern era feature Nietzsche or Hikikomoris, whose, again, their skill at video games uh, translate to wealth and power in another world. And in a culture where society, you know, in Japan, where society says if you the nail that stands out is the one that gets hammered down, the fantasy of being able to stand out and not be hammered down, but instead be praised with it and have you know adoring fans—that's an escape fantasy, and that's you know media and and narratives of escape fantasy is one way that we escape our mundane life, and often those stories reflect the things that we're trying to escape from. Uh, finally, you know, one last thing on how SAO I think became popular, as uh, AniTuber Giguk in his video essay "Why SAO Is Still Popular" explains. SEO had the fortuitous timing of coming out, you know, at a shift in the anime uh, landscape. Uh, in sort, you know, Dragon Ball became big because it was in the West because it was distributed by Toonami. Uh, Naruto, Bleach, and One Piece became big because they were distributed via fan subs on the newly accessible internet. Um, and those, you know, those were those were the previous gateway anime, and those were you know dying down. And you know, Naruto and Bleach were starting to end and, and wind down. It was hard to recommend those series to newcomers to the. So there needed to be a new distribu- there needed to be a new anime. The new distribution method of simulcasting, especially by Crunchyroll, uh, sparked a paradigm shift in how anime would be consumed. And SAO and this later Attack on Titan as well would be the anime to ride that to mass popularity. Uh, in addition, as Gigguk notes, uh, SAO really dialed into the rise of games as a form of mass media entertainment. In 1992, video games, the video, global video game market was worth about $28 billion worldwide. Uh, in 2002, the number has grown to about $37 billion, which is only about $11 billion total. And when you factor in inflation, basically there was no growth. However, between 2002 and 2012, when SAO came out, it went from 60, $37 billion up to $63 billion. Um, and with the rise of both console and PC gaming, and especially MMORPGs, such as World of Warcraft, EverQuest, and RuneScape in the early 2000s, to say nothing of the esports scene of Dota and League of Legends in 2009, it was honestly surprising there hadn't been another video major anime that covered video games before SAO. Um, not to mention you know, console gaming with the PS2, the Wii, PS3, and PS4 came out shortly after um, you know, the... Uh, and became came out shortly after uh, SAO came out. You know, this is all things that uh, you know helped dialed into SAO was able to dial dial into as gaming as a more popular medium, and our medium covers what we enjoy. Um, in addition, the early versions of the Oculus VR headset came out in the early 2010s, just before SAO premiered. So the possibility of VR as a quasi-realistic technology existed, though obviously it had been in the discussed in future fiction for far longer. Again, see Matrix, Ready Player One, or any other cyberpunk novel. Okay, so we've talked about the extrinsic factors of why SAO became as popular as it is. Uh, it's basically a sub a. a combination of good timing with being able to capture the zeitgeist of the moment, be it pop culture economic, and combined with the demand for a new gateway anime and a new distributor matter, SAO blew up. Okay, so we've talked about the long-running impact of, you know, of transforming the modern ESK genre as well. But now let's talk about the show itself. Um, and, you know, but before we get into the anime, we're going to talk about the, the franchise as a whole. So, as noted, uh, SAO is the brainchild of Reiki Kawahara. Uh, as uh, you know, 
as expected based on the prior discussion, he grew up playing a, a RPG video game called Wizardry, developed by Surtech that he quotes as being particularly influential on SAO. Uh, at the age of 27, in 2001, he wrote the first draft of SAO for a contest by light novel company ASCII MediaWorks, but ultimately he chose to not submit it because it ended up being too long against the page limit. Uh, instead, he ended up publishing what was then the first arc, the Einkrad arc, uh, on a web novel. Uh, quick tangent, in Japan, um, web novels are more or less original fiction that are self-published online um, because of the way that Japan and their internet works. Uh, these are sometimes, you know, there's often what's known as cell phone novels where people read novels on their cell phones. Um, and so, you know, these sort, may sort serialized uh, novels that you can read on your phone are pretty popular. Um, light novels, on the other hand, are similar to the Western form of pulp fiction or young adult novels. And these are formally published by publishing companies such as ASCII Media Works. Um, and, you know, they're, you know, uh, targeted toward a young audience. They have anime-style il illustrations uh, accompanying the text. And as opposed to the manga, you know, they are generally, manga are generally more images. This is still definitely written work. Um, light novels by their nature are often more edited, more professionally edited than web novels can be, though not necessarily. Um, but they're also edited to have simpler kanji uh, than web novels might. Um, I could do a whole episode on the rise of light novel adaptations within anime, but instead I'll point you to a YouTube channel called Gomi-san, uh, which is a great video on this. To summarize his points, uh, the anime adaptation of Haruhi Suzumiya in 2003 led to more producers looking to light novel as a source material for anime adaptations. Uh, prior to that, most anime adaptations had come from manga. Uh, and, you know, now it's kind of interesting seeing that now we're in an age where, um, you know, manhwa from Korea are potentially being adapted for through stuff like Tower of God and God of High School. Um, anyway, Anyway, uh, you know, again, with SAO's success, more producers looked to light, no light and web novels such as SAO to replicate its possible popularity uh, and to, you know, to some degree success, uh, you know, because now more uh, producers are turning to these uh, uh, light novel adaptations about isekai. Uh, it encourages, you know, web authors to write their own isekai novel and put it up on the self-publishing platform in the hope that this gets picked up uh, for an anime, which of course they're going to, and so the feedback loop continues. Okay, tangent aside, let's get back to SAO. So in 2001, Reiki Kawahara doesn't get SAO off the ground. He just publishes it, uh, you know, on, on a self-publishing platform and ends up adding to it over time. Uh, he ends up writing all of the arcs, uh, including the Phantom Bullet arc, the, the Alfheim arc, the, the Gun Girl on Ar Online arc, Mother's Osario arc, and the Alicization arc, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Then, in 2008, seven years later, he submits another manuscript to the same contest, uh, this time for his work Axel World, which, fun fact, canonically takes place in the same universe as SAO, just maybe you know decades later uh, compared to the events of SAO. Uh, interesting, so uh, not so I would recommend it, but definitely interesting, especially if you liked SAO. Um, he ends up winning this contest, and you know, as part of the deal of getting Axel World published um, and later adapted into another anime, ASCII MediaWorks also ends up publishing his earlier stories of SAO as their own light novels, which become wildly more popular than Axel World does. Um, he ends up taking down the web novel stories, uh, and that's where we are today. Um, there are currently 24 light novels volumes of SAO. This includes 
the anime through this season cover the first 18 volumes. Uh, volumes 19 and 20 tell a side story, um, and in, cur- currently he's working on volumes 21 through 24 and onward that tell the Unital Ring story, uh, which is the first arc that was not covered in the web, the original web novels. Um, again, you know there are very various light novel spinoffs, uh, some by Kawahara, some by Not, um, and some you know, but they all tell other stories within the Sao universe. Um, in particular, this one called Progressive, where it focuses on side events that happen in the uh, in the first Ancrat arc. Uh, anyway, moving to the anime, the first season ran for 25 episodes from the summer and fall for summer and fall of 2012. Um, it covers the Ironcratic and Alfheim arcs. Uh, the second season, Sao Two, uh, ran for two years later. Two years later, in summer and fall 2014, again another 25 episodes and covered the Gungiel Online and Mother's Rosario arc. Um, these were both t- directed by Tomohiko Ito, who also directed uh, one of my favorite anime, uh, Silver Spoon, uh, Erased, and the currently air- airing The Millionaire Detective Balance Unlimited. Uh, he also directed the feature-length movie Ordinal Scale, uh, which is an SAO movie, uh, which did not originally premiere- appear in the web or light novels, but is an original story by Kawahara. This premiered in spring 2017, um, and that brings us to the current and longest-running art, Alicization, which, ironically enough, is inspired by Alice in Wonderland, another isekai story. Um, but uh, the first set of 24 episodes ran from fall 2018 through fall 2019, and they covered the first half of the Alicization arc. Uh, if you want to get technical about it, there are different parts within the Alicization story. Um, the first, this covers the first three parts, Alicization Beginning, Rising, and Uniting. Uh, and then in fall 2019, there was another 12 episodes uh, for the second half that be, that were the first half of the, the sorry 12 episodes that were the first half of the second half of Alicization called Alicization War of the Underworld called uh, parts four and five Alicization Invading and Exploding, um, ori- and also you know the the start of part six Alicization Awakening. Um, originally, the second 12 episodes were supposed to come out this past spring 2020. But due to the pandemic, they were delayed and are now airing in the current summer 2020 anime season. Um, this is Alice Zayson, War of the World, War of the Under. Sorry, Sword Art Online, Alice Zayson, War of the Underworld, Part Two. Uh, this covers the rest of the Alice Zayson Awakening arc as well as the last part of the series, Alice Zayson Lasting. Um, as of the release of this ep- podcast episode, we are on episode 42 of 48 of the Alicization arc. Tomorrow, when this episode comes out, will be episode 43. It's been a ride. I really enjoyed Alicization. So, from a technical perspective, SAO is definitely above average when it comes to production quality. A1 Pictures knows this is their most popular series, and so they're definitely going to put all the budget into it. Uh, these especially shine during the combat sequences, as both the character animation and fighting effects are top-notch. Uh, perhaps not the most stylistically unique or innovative choreography-wise as other series out there, but they are very competent and never dropping in quality. Uh, part of this is the stakes are very good in that you know the show is very good at building up into each fight the emotional weight behind the fight and the significance of each fight beyond the simple winning of the combat, someone lives, someone dies. There's a lot more emotional weight behind it as well, which makes for a great fight. Um, in addition, the music and soundtrack go hand in hand and this builds it all up amazingly. A special shout out also to the artists who do the openings of each season as they're always bangers. Okay. So I've mostly danced around in specifics the individual arcs, 
but I have a pretty strong opinions on each individual arc, and so I'm going to need to get into spoiler territory. It's 26 minutes into this episode, so here's your warning to either skip ahead or just go watch SAO. My recommendation would be to watch the first 14 episodes, uh, as that's the better side of what the series has to offer. If you enjoy that, brace yourself for the next 11 are some of the worst in the series. Um, but that said, if you can come out of the other side of the first 25 season or 25 episode season of SAO um, and you still like it, you should definitely watch all the way through to the end of the Alice Jason arc. Okay, so the first arc, uh, the spoilers start here. Uh, the first arc, Iron Crag, covers the four, uh, 14 episodes of the first season of SAO. The premise is what I've already stated more or less. Kirito is a player in a virtual reality MMORPG, Aincrad, where the creator, for various reasons unknown, on opening day, flips a switch and that prevents users from logging out, and he uses an exploit in the VR headsets to kill them in real life if they die in the game or they try to remove their helmet. Uh, presumably, the only way to escape is if the players make their way up to the top of a 100-floor tower known as Aincrad. Of course, on each level, there is a boss who is particularly deadly, and so players need to be really strategic about how they proceed to minimize casualties. Uh, Kirito was a beta tester for the series, and he's particularly good at the game, but he has kind of a loner antisocial streak, uh, which leads him to kind of do things by himself. Again, kind of that self-insert, you know, badass character that's kind of wish-fulfillment. So, like I've mentioned, the first arc of Ironcred is really good, especially, you know, even with various quibbles I have with it. Um, the world building and the stakes of the premise, you know, if you die in the game, you die in real life. That definitely draws you in. And as a form of escape at media, as we discussed earlier, Kirito fits the bill to a T. Um, especially in these early arcs, he has a really blank slate personality that's it's really easy to uh, self-insert yourself so that you can you you can believe that you are the one who's kicking ass as you, you have the rare dual wield sword skill. Now, that doesn't make for great literature. I personally think your main character should have a strong personality that, you know, you can, that maybe you don't identify with personally. It's still a character as opposed to like a, a blank self-insert slate. But if it's for escapist media, that's it, it is what it is, right? Uh, Kirito does inexplicably somehow build up a harem of female protagonists, of female, other female players who all admire him, which again, given that he is his defining characteristic at this point is really good at video games and doesn't have much of a personality doesn't make sense to me but I'll again I think I'll talk this part up to Reiki's uh you know relative inexperience as an author for his first story um in writing good relationships okay so this of course leads to the OTP ship that is Kirito and Asuna, uh, another top level player. Uh, again, I'll give this with a grain of salt as this is partly escapist media. And again, the author was also relatively inexperienced at the time. He's actually since admitted he probably made Asuna a little bit too perfect um, for what she should be. But in my opinion, episodes 11 and 13 of their mini honeymoon, because spoiler, they get together, um, and the discovery of the quote-unquote virtual child called uh, who's like this, I don't know, bug, this code glitch, this admin thing called Yui, uh, essentially a virtual daughter, right? Uh, it's, it's my least favorite part of this arc. Um, I think I largely 
chalk it up to my dissatisfaction with the way with I don't see what the appeal of Kirito is to other players at this point beyond beyond being super strong. He doesn't seem particularly empathetic, particularly caring. He doesn't really show these elements, right? Um, we're told, oh, he's a great person. I love him so much, but he doesn't really exhibit those in a way that makes sense to me. It felt kind of rust, right? Now, there is something to be said that they do have, compared to other anime, they actually show their progression of their relationship over a series as opposed to most other anime where the relationship is on the last episode and you don't ever actually see the relationship grow over time. But even then, right, in later arcs, I'm, I'm kind of rambling, ranting at this point, uh, they don't really ever get in conflict with each other. It's almost like they're completely almost too perfect for each other and they never fight, which is not how relationships work, boys and girls. Okay, uh, back to the script. I, that was completely unscripted. Um, you know, I, I think the other part is that, you know, Yui as a... Um, as a bit of game code that somehow comes and gets its own sentience, which again plays into some other themes, which I do appreciate. Um, her experience kind of breaks the immersion of what a game, how a game should be designed and what it's like. Um, I think Jeff from Mother Spaceman has a pretty good video kind of picking apart the world building and how Yui kind of breaks that. Um, I'm not going to go into it too much, but I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. Again, grain of salt, that's, I think, mostly can be talked up to the author's inexperience in writing relationships here. That said, I think my personal actual biggest complaint with the arc is they kind of fast forward through most of the floors. Uh, by like halfway through, they're already up to the 70s. They skip most of the other boss fights. You know, we see the first boss fight and then we kind of skip to the boss fights in the 70s. Um, and then spoiler, Kirito discovers that one of the other players is in fact the game's creator who downloaded himself into the game, uh, who tapped him there in the first place. And they end up resolving the plot 25 floors early. We never even get to see what the boss is like on floor or 100. Um, again, this isn't really a knock on the story per se, more so my preference on what could have been. We could have explored the world of Ironcrad more and the implications of what living in a virtual world must be like. Um, Log Horizon, as a, as a recommendation, is another one of my favorite isekai, as I mentioned, that does this really well. Definitely check that out. But I suppose I could try to read the manga and light novel, you know, SAO Progressive, that does focus more on the early levels, but Again, this complaint is more my personal preference of loving world building as opposed to, you know, rushing the plot to try to get to the resolution. Given that this was initially meant for a light novel contest and it was already too long for the original contest, I see how he couldn't really include a lot more than what was already in there uh, to make the first arc at uh, what it was. Anyway, overall... Despite my complaints, I'll give SAO Ankrad Arc a 3 out of 5. Um, if you ignore those specific episodes, I didn't really enjoy. And with the context of what SAO, SAO will become, I would even push this up to maybe a 4.5. But I think I'll keep it with a 3, three, three out of 5 for now. Um, okay. So the next arc, Fairy Dance, as it's formerly known, or Alfheim, as I'm going to refer to it, takes place two months after the end of the Ironcrad arc. Uh, the whole ordeal took about two years, right? They were trapped in the game for two years. And, you know, after they beat the game and they, they got back out, uh, players started to wake up. Uh, a different virtual reality game, because for some reason, the events of trapping players in virtual reality didn't completely grind the industry to a stop by regulation or public fear. Um, anyway, Alf, uh, another game called Alfheim, where players take on the roles of fairies, is now popular. Uh, while Kirito and many of his friends got out of the game, 
Asuna and 300 other players have for some reason not yet woken up from their comas. Uh, Kirito finds a clue that Asuna may be trapped inside the game of Alfheim somewhere, so he logs in and rescues her, or tries to rescue her. Uh, surprise, surprise, Alfheim is somehow built on the code based off of Aincrad, so all of Kirito's skill, as well as Yui, carry over to this game. Uh, in addition, he gets the help of a player named Lifa, who in reality is actually his adoptive sister, who's not actually his blood sister, but actually his cousin, but who also has feelings for him. Yeah, apparently that's not as taboo in Japan as it here is in the States. This whole incest subplot is still pretty weird for me, though. Okay, long story short, Kirito goes, rescues Asuna, and it turns out that this creepy dude who had been planning on marrying her while she was comatose for her, man for her family's money uh, was the one behind trapping her and the other players in Alfheim. There were tentacles and weird creepy faces, and yeah, he gets his sit kicked in, but... You know, uh, as you can tell, I really dislike the Alfheim arc. Uh, the weird incest subplot, Asuna being reduced to a damsel in distress, literally called a bird in a cage, uh, whereas in part one, she at the very least was a badass warrior on equal footing with Kirito. Um, there was also the, soup, the continued super convenient Mary Sue power fantasy of Kirito embodies along with Yui's game-breaking, you know, hacks. Um, Probably the worst part is that this arc really helped define SAO's antagonists as completely creepy rapists who have like no sense of subtlety whatsoever. Um, there was one in the first arc, he was a relatively minor villain, but uh, it continues on in pretty much every arc, there was at least one creepy rapist-y person, basically. Uh, it's like the writer's shorthand to using sexual deviancy and sexual violence as a way of saying, hey, this guy's bad, don't feel bad at all when he gets killed and his sit kicked in. I mean, I guess for power fantasy, it makes sense that like you want to save people from, you know, people who can do some of the worst crimes possible, but, you know, I feel also that the most compelling vi villains in fiction are a little bit more ambiguous. They're not total assholes they're like you sometimes see a point and you can to some degree relate to them that's completely thrown out of the window here and it really often has the side effect of degrading the female characters who are forced to be objectified to just show how bad these villains are um anyway that whole part over overall on my scale i give alfheim a one out of five unfortunately i give it a zero out of five if i could um on a technical level, it was okay. It didn't really elevate in any way. And the cringy plot elements here really brought it down for me and really sullied my perspective. And I think a lot of other people's perspective on what SAO was. Now, we have Gungale Online, which is known as the Phantom Bullet arc for, uh, formally. This is the first half of uh, Sword of Online Season 2. Uh, yet another v virtual reality MMO, uh, Gungale Online, has grown in popularity, and this time it leans on gun controls instead of sword combat. Uh, this reflects the real-world popularity of first-person suitors. If there's something SAO does, it is you know reflecting the trends in video games. Uh, that mean, I guess that means at some point we'll do for a Gotza uh, anime season or Sword of Online season. Uh, anyway, there is a series of deaths in the real world where a cloaked player, uh, Death Gun, suits a player in-game, and then that player who got sought ends up dead in real life. Um, this eerily seems familiar to the situation in Aincrad, where if you died in the game, you died in real life. So Kirito, as the premier VR player, is asked by the virtual reality police, yes, they're actually a thing, uh, it, to investigate it by logging into the gun Gale online. Uh, parallel to all this, there's a player named Sinon, Sinon uh, who is climbing the ranks of the game as he uses it as a way to deal with 
real-life trauma and PTSD related to gun violence via immersion therapy. Uh, She ends up bumping into and helping Kirito, who inexplicably has a very feminine avatar, enter a PvP tournament where Death Gun presumably will be. Uh, Long story short, it turns out that Death Gun and or actually is actually a former Einkrat survivor and actually a group of former Einkrat survivors who were they were part of a guild of player killers known as Laughing Coffin and they used the anarchy of Einkrat to be able to kill people for fun uh, and so, you know, they're doing this again in Gun Guild Online to get that same thrill. Um, this time, they're using both someone in and out of game to pull off the illusion of killing them in game and on real life. Um, so, you know, this arc actually does a decent job of covering PTSD and trauma. Uh, Sinon obviously deals with her trauma with guns. And then Kirito, who ha- he had killed some laughing coffin members back in Aincred in self-defense, ended up had been grappling with the weight of having killed another human being. Uh, I also appreciate how Sinon here uh, is shown as another highly competent female player who doesn't go weak in the knees for Kirito for no reason, but instead she grows to respect him and eventually love him, but not in the same uh, amateurish way that Arsenal is sometimes portrayed to show her love for him, for Kirito, um, you know, due to his actions and what he actually does, not just because he happens to be amazing and it's just given that everyone's going to fall for him. So there are some downsides of this arc. Um, this is a bit toward the second half of the 14 episodes where for one reason or another, the episodes drag on and there's a lot of exposition. So a lot of the, there's not as much action as I would have liked. Um, Kirito is still a bit of a blank slate Mary Sue though. In retrospect with the recent arc, this is where he starts developing more of a personality distinct from his self-insert self, um, probably due to Kawahara being a better author at this point. Um, and then the last downside is that, you know, an, as I mentioned, one of uh, Sinon's real-life classmates happens to be one of the Death Gun associates, uh, and he has a crush on her, so he rejects him, and he gets a little bit rapey, and yeah, sorry, I say stop um anyway i'm gonna go ahead and call gun Gale online a three out of five also pushing into the four out of five range um mostly due to the, the lack of the animation in the climatic and in the in the second half um as well as also some you know those recurring issues Okay, the set, the last ha- the second half of SAO season two is split into two arcs. Um, one is a relatively throwaway side story. It's called Caliber. It takes place in Alfheim game. Kirito and his harem do a side quest that's pretty much a palate cleanser, just fun action romp that you know doesn't have really any, any serious stakes to them, especially after the seri- the heavy stuff in GGO. Uh, very inconsequential. Give it like a two out of five, maybe a three out of five if I'm feeling generous, but that's Caliber arc. Um, the other arc, though, in season two is arguably my favorite arc in all of SAO, Mother Rosario. So, at the end of the Alfheim arc, a new version of Aincrad emerged, and without the whole death game situation, uh, simultaneous to this, a new mysterious player who previously had and, and appears who ends up beating the almighty Kirito in a duel. Intrigued, Asuna meets up with this duelist and is introduced to Yuki and her guild, the Sleeping Knights. Uh, in New Aincrad, guilds who defeat a level boss get their name on a monument, and guilds that beat a boss without anyone helping them uh, gets the individual members' names etched. So the Sleeping Knights wants to have their names etched on the monument before they disband in the spring for unknown reasons. So Asuna joins their guild and helps them do so, um, but then she discovers that the reason Yuki had... Uh, the reason that that's going to get disbanded is that Yuki has a terminal disease. Um, it, this is why they were so eager to get the name memorialized. It also explained that she has such amazing skills. She was using a medical VR device for therapy, which allowed her to hone her VR skills for just because of the sheer amount she, t- she spent in virtual reality. 
parallel to all this, there was also a subplot of Asuna coming into conflict with her mother, who doesn't understand her feelings relating to her experiences in the virtual world and her relationship with Kirito. The arc ends with Yuki passing away peacefully, surrounded by her friends in virtual reality, and Asuna and her mother coming to terms with each other. There is so much to love about Mother's Rosario. On one hand, it plays with the concept of death in a well, in a surprisingly mature fashion, as well as you know, on the recurring theme of sort of of sort of online of the validity of virtual experience compared to flesh-based experiences. More on this later. Um, there's also the technical expertise, as always. You know, kind of background at this point. You know, music and animation, but they're especially good here uh, in Mother's Rosario. And the world building, you know, of the uses and implications of virtual reality in this world are very well done and satisfies that you know part of my anime brain. Uh, perhaps the biggest thing that Mother Rosario does was redeem Asuna's character. Uh, Asuna, for the first eight or so episodes of the first season, was a badass. But over time, she ended up becoming an accessory to Kirito's story instead of her own individual. And in particular, she got sidelined and objectified during the Alfheim arc uh, and to some degree the GGO arcs, though Sinon helps in that regard. Um, here, instead of focusing on Kirito as the protagonist, Asuna is our main point of view character. And it really allows us to get inside her head as a person. And not only that, since we've been told she's over and over she's a badass, she's never had the chance to really demonstrate it, but here she does through her actions. And that just elevates this arc overall. Plus, Kirito is still overpowered, but it's done so in a way here that is actually amusing in his brief appearance that you know helps actually push the, the story forward in a meaningful way. And his loss to Yuki also helps bring him down a notch and you know less unattainable. So overall, Mother's Rosario, four out of five, potentially five out of five. So um, yeah, definitely my favorite arc. Uh, and definitely uh, that alone would have made the whole series worth it. Now, between SAO2 and Alicization, there was an original feature-length film called Ordinal Scale. So the Amosphere is the virtual headset that was used for Alfame Onward. There is also a new VR headset in use uh, called um, the Ogma, which is actually a AR, augmented reality or AR headset. Now, this came out the year after Pokemon Go and was a big hit with its augmented reality experience. So SAO, SAO again stays on top of the technological trends of our time. Uh, there is a combat game using the Ogma where players fight in flesh space with using with a game called Ordinal Scale. Um, apparently, though, our Ankrad bosses are appearing in Ordinal Scale. So once again, Kirito enters the game to investigate, though having to use his physical body instead of the uh, virtual one hurts his skills. Long story short, the developer of Ordinal Scale is using the game to steal the memories of Ironclad survivors to create an AI version of his daughter, daughter who died in SAO. Yes, the science is handwritten, but good enough. And by stealing the memories, he risks uh, incurring brain damage to them, which obviously Kirito has to go stop. Um, another SAO survivor named Eiji is helping this professor out since Eiji was friends with his daughter, Yuna. Fast forward to the end scene, all of the SA players rally and recover their memories, and they have a climactic battle where they fight with the boss from level 100 of Ironcrad that we never got to see. Uh, AG also learns to let go of Yuna since he still has the memories of her, uh, though apparently this is kind of underscored, undercut in the novels because apparently they were able to develop another version, not the complete version of, of Yuna, obviously, but another version that is good enough, basically. Anyway. As far as eye candy goes, this is SAO on a movie budget. It's definitely flashy, majestic, if, you know, kind of a little bit rushed just because it has a only two-hour one time instead of a full season. Um, overall, decent theme. So, you know, I'll give it a three out of five. 
Now, finally, uh, 45 minutes in, we get to the Alicization arc. So Kirito is working part-time for a company who's tied to the VR police, and he's been helping them test out a new VR machine called the Soul Transmitter that purports to connect to a user's soul instead of just their brain. Uh, there's a lot of sci-fi mumbo-jumbo I won't get into here. Long story short, he gets attacked on the way home, from, and he is attacked by the last accomplice of the death gun incident in Gun Gale Online, who has escaped. So in order to keep him on life support, they need to send him to the Underworld, the virtual world he had been testing using the Soul Translator. In the Underworld, Kirito meets with a virtual character named Yujio, and they grow together uh, throughout the world, learning more about its origins and the strange rules that govern its inhabitants. Eventually, two years later in game time, game time passes faster than in real life, uh, it only takes a couple of days in real life, they end up coming into conflict with the Integrity Knights. Uh, this includes Alice, who resembles one of Yujio's uh, childhood friends uh, who had broken one of those rules. And you know they end up doing a good old-fashioned boss rush through a tower to meet with the god of the underworld, the administrator who they discover was a you know, another one of the characters in the underworld who had discovered the admin controls for the virtual world and placed these rules in place. Um, and Alice again, Alice once again learns to break the rules of the administrator and they end up defeating her. Though so at the end of the battle, it ends with Yujiro dead and Kirito a vegetable. Um, I'll tell you there'll be spoilers, but we'll get to that in, in a little more in a second. So, flashback to reality. Kirito's body has been taken to the hospital to, you know, go into the soul translator to keep him on life support. Um, and it, it turns out that his body gets taken away mysteriously. Asuna tracks it down to a military base in the middle of the Pacific and somehow finagles her way on, on base. It turns out that the underworld was a project to grow artificial um, to grow artificial intelligences such as Yujo and Asuna and Alice uh, and find one who would be able to make autonomous decisions even if it were outside the original programming parameters. Uh, these would then be used for military forces, uh, military weaponry, and, self- and, and self-piling drones very timely. Um, but, you know, you know, those breaking those rules, Alice breaking those rules is her developing this autonomy, which prompts foreign military forces to invade the floating fortress to try and steal the AI on a USB stick. Uh, Kirito turns into a vegetable as the result of a power surge when the military force invades. So the invading force decides to log into the underworld uh, using characters from the dark territory, you know, orcs and such, uh, to try to invade the human realm, uh, which causes the War of the Underworld arc we see, where Kirito is a vegetable in a wheelchair and Alice is now taking care of him. Uh, Asuna is able to rally her and Kirito's friends and log in on another soul translator, which they have you know, locked away on the on the base away from the uh, invaders. Uh, and she gets her and her friends from Alfheim and the other VR games to join and enter the underworld to try to fight in the war against the military force. And that's where we find ourselves today. Now, Alice's Zayson fixed a lot of the issues I had with the early arcs of SAO. Kirito was the Mary Sue, badass, no flaws, bland personality. Now he has to work and level up himself from a very beginner level to a point where he can actually face the God Administrator. And it feels earned and and realistic, and he has an actual personality and a sense of humor. Once he sent that lone wolf personality that from the beginning of the season from the, of, of the series, and you know, he once he's freed of Asana, so to speak, and are able to develop a realistic relationship with Yujiro, Yujiro is best boy. Um, yeah, he's definitely a much more well-rounded character in this regard. Uh, speaking of his relationships, you know, Yujo is best boy, and his relationship is a lot more realistic and fleshed out. 
you know, on the action animation plot side of things, you know, there is the sci-fi mumbo jumbo, but it does hit on some interesting themes of what a soul is and the ethics of artificial intelligence. Uh, we'll get more to that later. Um, but on a more basic level, it returns to the roots of what I wanted the first arc of SAO to be, a good old-fashioned boss rush through different levels of a tower or a mass scale war between two huge armies with badass and unique and inventive powers. Um, you know, there's still some issues such as the prevalence of sexual assault as a plot device or character development point in order to show that this person is a really bad guy. Um, and you, unfortunately, it sounds like this is more from the anime team, not so much Kawahara as this didn't appear in the web novel. But, you know, I think giving this arc two full 24-episode seasons to breathe and develop really helped elevate the show. Not to mention, you know, music animation, still top-notch, um, especially in the one-on-one -on -one combat fights, which really helped sell the show as really cool. A special shout-out to the battle between Berkuli and Vecta in episode 38, where the animation style straight-up changes just to show the intensity. Uh, perhaps my favorite part, though, of Alicization is how it closes the loops on a lot of outstanding threads from earlier arcs, and does a lot of callbacks. On a base level, the appearance of all of Kirito's friends from other video games, you know, feels like something out of Avengers Endgame, and you know how that felt watching it in theaters. Uh, Yuki has a moment where her spirit is channeled through Asuna, and she has a badass moment, you know, as well as the rest of the Sleeping Knights showing up. Uh, Eiji and Yuna from the Ordinal Scale movies show up in an anime original sequence that was in the novels. And even one of the antagonists from the military force happens to be a member of Laughing Coffin from Aincrad, who Kirito had to kill, and he'd been a recurring villain throughout the entire series. So even if it's, you know, a bit of a, even, so that's kind of cool to have him come back again. And then, you know, even the Deuce Ace Machina at the end of the original arc, where it seemed Kirito beat the death system just by willing it, you know, it's explained a lot more here where the system of the virtual reality world lives and thrives on people willing and imagining things into being, uh, which is the core of combat here. So that endgame-like end feeling kind of, you know, makes sense when you consider that Alice's Zayson was the last arc that Kawahara wrote before he ended the web novel, before it got picked up for a light novel Zayson. And so it's kind of a capstone on the series. And you know, it makes all it makes everything that Kirito has been up up through through the last almost hundred episodes worth it. All of the nonsense of Alfheim, all of you know everything, even Caliber, even Ordinal Scale, Gungil Online, all of these arcs and all of their problems, it made it worth it for these for this moment and these episodes where everyone comes together and, and pushes through. Um you know, not to mention that in the most recent episode, Kirito got his most humanizing bit of characterization yet. You know, after almost a hundred episodes of being Mr. Cool and Suave and Effortless, we see that Kirito has been haunted over the years for the deaths he caused in SAO, as well as the violence that seems to follow him where and impact the ones he loves. And he's about ready to give up. And it never really occurred to me that the trauma he'd been through made me want and you know, he'd been through and this you know, to see him deal and grapple with all of it, it finally what got me to mentally pull him out of this Mary Sue categorization and place him into actually a well-developed character, um, at least the Alice's Asian version of him. And, you know, the person who ends up bringing him from the brink of, of giving up is not Asuna or Sinan or his, you know, sister, cousin, uh, but, you know, Yujiro, the person who he spent years with in the underworld growing up and being best friends with, like, that is something that I was not expecting to see. And it really really made me change my opinion of the show, which is why I'm now going on 50 plus minutes, almost an hour talking about the show. So I can't quite give a grade for Alice's Ace yet. We obviously need to see how the series resolves in the next 
half dozen episodes or so. But I have high hopes in the second half of this core as it is as good as the first. And like Mother's Rosario, I can see Alice's Asin tentatively getting a 4 out of 5, pushing into 5 out of 5 for overall score. So now that I've talked for SAO for insert, uh, 53 minutes now, uh, I have one topic I want to touch on that is, I think, SAO's most underrated aspect. It's themes. Now, I see SAO largely as a metaphor for our relationship with technology and the changing dynamics of how we relate to each other in a new digital age. More than once, it's hammered home that from the point of view of Kirito and his friends, the experiences in virtual reality, even the traumatic ones of being trapped in Aincrad, they're all extremely valuable to them. And as the relationships we have with uh, each other, forged with people that they as are the relationship they have forged with other people they have met, never met in person. While in modern society, we aren't doing full dives into virtual reality to meet up with friends, it is still very possible to develop deep and meaningful friendship with each other in online spaces, be it forums, chat rooms, live streams, or online games. To say nothing of friends you make in real life or in a world where we need to be virtually distant, you know, the majority of our day-to-day interactions are now behind the screen. I talk to my college friends more online than I do in person, especially since most of them are around the country. You know, as a millennial, I often heard growing up that the internet is a nice distraction and all, but you really should focus on the real world in front of you. Now in 2020, where things done online can and do have real intangible impacts, not only on our daily personal lives, but now are the forefronts of where, you know, the culture war is happening online, right? Like TikTok teens, you know, and, and K-pop stands fighting for activism online. I think that the dichotomy between what's real and, and, and what's virtual is no longer valid or really necessary. It's all the same one reality that we've created here. The way we experience life has transcended that of physicality, be it something as dangerous as cyberbullying or misinformation spread via social media, or honest to goodness, romantic relationships like Kirito and Asuna's or personally me and my own wife who I met on a dance forum years ago. Online life is real life, just as much as flesh space. And as much as I think Karahara could have done a better job of developing Kirito's and Asuna's relationship in the early arcs and not have it feel rushed, I can't really say I dislike it because it's a virtual real relationship. I always consider it just as real. It's just the development of it, you know, and, and what was shown in the text was another my standard, but that was never my qualm. That was a virtual relationship. Another theme of SAO, I think, is humanity's relationship with technology. As I mentioned, you know, SAO's technology kind of grows with what, you know, is present in our real world, right? Virtual reality to augmented reality to now talking about drones and artificial intelligences. I think in today's world where Facebook and Google and Amazon are being dragged before Congress to testify on their invasion of privacy and how they're tools for the rich to get richer, it's important to remember, and SAO does this a great job of driving this home, technology is neither good or bad. It is a tool. It's, enab- it's a capable of enabling amazing things such as helping fight the democracy or forging connections that couldn't have been happened before or as an SAO, allowing Yuki to live a full life while still bedridden. It's also capable of terrible things such as, you know, drone strikes, misinformation, and vitriol to spread, or an SAO causing the deaths of thousands of players when they're trapped in the game. At the end of the day, technology is a tool that can be used for either good or bad, but its development will never be fully stopped, as evidenced by VR games still being a thing after Aincrad. So we might as well learn to live with technology and, and how to work with it. And even going deeper, as I mentioned before, SAO does a really good job of, at the very least, brushing the surface of the implications of the ethics of the world of artificial intelligence. 
perhaps not as deep as in a manner as shows like Black Mirror or Mr. Robot might, but enough so that the future generation who watch it and as that particular industry grows is something to consider and be aware of. And not to mention even getting the whole thoughts of what is a soul, what is life, where does life begin? Uh, in any case, I think that's enough SAO discussion for this episode. I, to sum it up, I don't, I won't say it's my favorite series, but it's one I can at least have respect for, um, and respect for what it's done, its themes, and definitely a lot of respect for how it's changed the anime industry, both in terms of distribution and the kind of shows that come after it. Anyway, what do you think of SAO as a series? How would you rank it, either overall or specific arcs? What are your favorite moments, characters, or arcs? What themes and motifs do you love throughout? And is it overrated, underrated? And what do you think is important as the broader landscape is? And most importantly, why does my boy, the one to Klein, get no respect in this anime? Seriously, we need a series just, just about Klein. All right, let me know what you think on my Twitter, yet another, yet ano anypod. Uh, if you have any questions for the show, please let me know at yet another anime podcast at gmail.com. You can find my mail on ninjaboy333, boy with an I. A link to that, as well as our iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play links will be in the show notes. Um, if you can leave a refer- recommendation on those or on podcast.com, it really helps. I'll also include links to the video essays I mentioned in the show notes. Intro and outro music provided by Suichi Sakagami at tandes.com. Editing and production is provided by Ninja Boy Media. That's it for this episode. We are on the first and third Fridays of each month. Next time, until next time, see you, Space Cowboy. Bang. <laughs>